Let me tell you a story. In uh, the 7th of September in 2007, my friend Gabe Cedillo went for a little walk. He went for a walk in uh, Sydney Harbour, where we um, lived at the time, and uh, he had a good book. You're being lost in a great book. Gabe got lost in a great book that day. He strolled down um, around the side of the harbour, along the water, and he sat near the opera house, and he just meandered his way in, lost in his story, and he was there a good long while. Now, a couple hours in, um, a couple of chaps in suits come up to Gabe and um, said, excuse me, sir, why are you here? And uh, Gabe said, I'm, I'm reading. And Gabe's a very cheery chap. He said, I'm reading my book. And they said, why are you here? And he said, I'm, I'm reading. They said, how did you get in here? And Gabe said, I just, I just walked in and sat down. And he began to feel the sort of threat level go up in him quite significantly. And these two chaps in suit said, sir, do you see that boat out there in the harbor? Gabe says, yeah, yeah, I see that boat. He said, right now in that boat, there are two snipers, and they have their rifles trained on you right now. <laughs> Gabe is um, curious as to this and discovers that these were uh, members of a, a, a certain George W. Bush's secret service. And um, as it turned out, Gabe had meandered his way into a secured area so that George W. Bush and uh, Vlad in the back could have a little uh, moment together in front of the Sydney Opera House. Gabe had stumbled into, almost into an, an international crisis, um, unawares of that when he entered that space, it was going to change completely. And what we see in this is when the king arrives or when the heads arrive, the space that people are in, it changes completely. It gets set apart. It gets called out. Stuff starts to move there. And sometimes you don't even notice. Sometimes we don't even see where the king's coming. And so tonight, we're understanding that the king comes to us. We understand that when the king announces that he's coming, everything around us will start to change. So who is this man, Zechariah, that spoke these words? We know really little about him other than what we read here. He died like many prophets. We heard last week Isaiah was, was sawed in half. Zechariah was stoned for speaking up against the king. We know that prophetic writing um, like this, it had a meaning then. It would be spoken into the culture. We know that actually for us here today, it has a meaning now. It speaks into something that God's doing. And we know that prophetic writing can also have a meaning that's yet to be fulfilled. So there's a then, there's a now, and there's a not yet. There is a big story going on here that we're part of. So what was the world that Zechariah lived in then? It was an area called Yehud. And he lived in the time of the emperor Darius through the, the Persian Empire. I just go to the movie 300 if I need some historical references for the Persian Empire. We're talking mighty, strong dominance across the area. He's a third generation Persian Empire who's put down, put down two other pretenders who claimed his throne. Zechariah lived in an era of empire, of dictators who put down insurgencies and led with a violent crushing hand. This then causes these economic areas in the issue, in the area in which he lives. Limited natural resources means that there is financial upheaval going on. It's tense. 
It's an area with tensions in the community around it. Because you've had a lot of people who decided to go into exile to remove themselves from that place and move to Babylon for a time, and then they return. But you've also got a load of people who stayed. And so you've got this dissettlement, this movement of people, which no doubt begins to cause tensions around borders and tensions around the community. It's a neighborhood where some welcome those returning from exile, and some could do with their borders being tighter. It's charged with tribalism, charged with division, charged with those who think they are right and those who think they are wrong. When we read Zechariah, we're entering a familiar space. We're entering a man who had a vision. And we get that sense that we can be full of the same vision and the same tensions that exist here. Dominant rulers, rebellions, mixed opinions around who settles where and around who controls your borders. We know really little about Zechariah, but we are in familiar territory here. He's not just an ancestor in our faith. He felt the same things that we do now. An unease, a longing for a kingdom, a longing for restoration, a longing for these boundaries and divisions to be resolved. Zechariah is prophesying, and we're going to receive something from that. So let's lean in. Let's ask God, what is he saying to us now through these words? So this passage begins with the command to rejoice, rejoice. And when we're invited and commanded to rejoice, we always ask, what for? What are we rejoicing over? When good news arrives, it has power because we become aware of our need to hear good news. We live feeling the need to hear good news. In 2016, we have lived feeling the need for good news. Half our heroes that we grew up with seem to have passed away. Human rights violations are just brought up all over the place daily. Our established nations and structures are grinding against each other, grinding against people. And within each of us in other ways, there's, there's people coming into power that were um, only thought of by comedians five years ago. But this isn't new, though. Because like the people Zechariah spoke to, they were aware of these divisions, the financial upheaval, the unsettling of people groups. And I think Christ in you, the hope of glory, Christ in us, feels the need for God to speak. It feels the need to hear from God. We long for peace. Why do we long for God to declare there, there is a new king and a new kingdom? Why is that good news? I think it's because we live awakened to the world that is around us. We are feeling it. We are hearing it every day. We're carrying it. Prophets often speak into this peace within us, this place of unsettlement, this place that longs for change, that longs for transformation. And I wonder tonight, what around us, what around you do we need to hear God declare his peace over? What do you see? What do you hear? What do you feel when you walk into your office, when you enter your home, when you walk down your local community streets? What jumps out at you as a need that is being called out somewhere inside of you? 
Or what great problem do you desire to see transformation in? So many great ideas, great organizations, they start because someone saw a problem that needed solved. Jesus is awakening our eyes to the needs. And so from this place, we wonder, what is God declaring? This is a passage that starts with a command to rejoice, an invitation, and then God starts to unveil his declaration, his plan. He speaks about the king um, that we will now see as Jesus. And then he also steps back and says, this is what I will do. I will send this king, but this is my heart. This is my plan. So we're going to see that through fulfillment. We're going to see that through disarmament. And we're going to see that through a fullness of life that God offers. And then we're going to say, well, what does that mean for us tomorrow, the next day, the next day? When we hear about this um, king riding in on a donkey, the obvious connection of this king is to Jesus, who on Palm Sunday enters Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. And Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. He brought it to light. He brought it to life. And I think part of why he did that is so that it nudges us to expect and look to God to continue to fulfill the later part of what this passage is saying to us. It should nudge us to see that God is fulfilling this prophecy through Jesus and then through us. And it's an ongoing pattern. What is it going to look like for God to continue to fulfill this word tomorrow, Wednesday, 2020, 2050? So we see then that the king rides in in righteousness, in strength, and in humility, in lowliness. This is a declaration of gentleness. This is the amazement of Christmas that the magic, the wonder, the miracle, the strength, the rushing in of this is actually fulfilled in lowliness, in gentleness, and humility. By that we mean we see that this Jesus, this king spoken of by Zechariah, would become a child, would enter someone's womb, and would be birthed into a farm. This is a different God that... um, is being spoken of than Darius. This king is this coming Messiah. It's different to Darius. It's different to the ruler of the region. And what, what the people here are hearing is this is God declaring a new king. This is God declaring a different president. This is God declaring a different government. This is a different ruler with a different nature, a gentle nature. He's come not to arm an army and overthrow He's come to disarm and unite people. So there's this beautiful picture of um, saying, I will break the bows and I will lay aside the chariots and I will release the war horses. That picture of Ephraim and Jerusalem is a reference to these divided nations. And imagine hearing that. Imagine hearing these pillars of strength, these fearsome chariots these war horses that would be familiar, thundering through your village at times, intimidating you. Imagine this is God taking the bombers of Russia and landing them for good. This is the Humvees of the so-called Islamic State being parked 
and people going home. This is the grounding of US drones. This is the shutting down of British submarines. This is unsettling. This is a different piece for us. This is everyone disarming nuclear weapons. This is what God is encouraging. There's a word here of God bringing disarmament in the yet to come. And so it begins to unsettle us. How can this be? We don't see that. We don't know that life. What does it mean for God to start putting those dreams or those hopes inside us and to have faith that God would do that? Perhaps if we just bring it right home, that idea of God declaring disarmament, maybe we take it into the things that we use. What if God helped us begin to disarm? And what are the things we might use? Is it a class system that we sit in? You know, I, I come from uh, Glasgow, and there's a quite a unique class system there, I think, that exists. It tends to be green or blue. It's very much Celtic or Rangers. And that's a class system that pokes you into religion. So I was kind of confused by and a bit messed up as a kid because people realized that my dad was a Church of Scotland Presbyterian minister, but we were Celtic fans. That didn't, that didn't sit well with people. It was lost. They were just a better team. So I think in Edinburgh, we aren't so much worried of classing people as hibs or hearts. They're obviously, they're just not superior enough teams to be cutting that. That's fine. Um, but what if God disarmed us from the things that exist in Edinburgh? Perhaps it's not um, which team you support or what religion that puts you in. Perhaps it's that comment of what school you went to that gets lorded and thumbed over people. Perhaps we need to disarm that class system. Perhaps it's the position you hold in your work or your academic achievements or your level of ambition and drive. It could be how long you've been in the church. It could be how many people you know across uh, the Scottish Christendom and your influence there that you perceive. God invites us, though, to lay down the things that are dividing us and the things that set us apart. And he invites us to change our language. We don't lose by dropping our weapons or dropping our, our ways of division. We win. This is part of the story that God is unfolding here, a story of victory, a story of hope. We see a fullness of life in this passage. It goes on after talking about these incredible pictures of disarmament. It speaks about our, um, our cups being overflowing, full like the bowl at the altar. We see an image of fullness and an invitation into that. As we track back through this passage, maybe if you've got it there, you just want to go through it and see what is jumping out as you, at you at God's invitation as we do this. Because this passage speaks so much hope, so much life, so much potential that it alarms me. It wakes me up to reality I don't see yet, but one that I long for, one that we desire to see fulfilled. So, I mean, I'm picking up an invitation to rejoice, a righteous king, victorious, yet lowly and humble, gentle. I see he says that he will take away the weapons, that he'll bring a peace, that he'll bring a rule, that he'll free prisoners, that there'll be safety, that there'll be a double restoration, that he will be a shield, 
that the atmosphere will be of drinking and roaring, that there will be fullness, that people will be saved, and then we will shine like jewels. I want to see this. I feel the need for this. In the true sense of the word, this is what it means for everyone to grow in God. There's been a horrid, horrid teaching over the last kind of 60 years called prosperity. And it's the idea that if you give in, God blesses you back. Give in, get back. Give in, get back. And that word has just been, a, it's been abused by people. It's ruined people's perception of God. And what we read in this passage is God's heart for people, for life, for encouragement. This is what it truly means for God to prosper a people, to release them into justice, to release them into hope, to righteousness, to wholeness in our world, to cause us to see life in our souls, in our communities, in our language, the way we speak of people, in our thoughts, what we think of people. God is calling us into a fullness of life through the words that we have here. We must never let anyone lie to us and say, give to get in the kingdom of God. God is saying, I want to see people come into life. I want to see your souls delivered from fear. I want to see you step into joy and life and relationship with me. So God has declared this amazing victory. He's decked it out. So how do we then live in and out of that victory? We don't even bat around that term too much these days. What does it look like if God's declared this and intended this and spoken it into us? Well, when we realize who God is and what his nature is, we realize that the same spirit lives inside of us. The spirit of Jesus that he sent that the king sends you. We are the ones who live this out. Because in the passage, it moves from um, God declaring him sending the king and what the king will bring, and it begins to describe the life of the king's followers and those who are part of that. We're the ones who get to live that out. Now, I don't feel victorious all the time. It doesn't take an awful lot to knock me off that kind of war horse, we got this. If I lose my keys and get locked out of the house for more than 10 minutes, especially if someone's with me, or if I realize that I just haven't emailed enough people back here, man, I start to feel like victory is a far-off concept. We can become so easily aware of our feelings. We get overwhelmed, and we get frustrated by conversations, and we see the world around us enter into this. It demands tolerance for years, and then suddenly it's carved itself up to people who are in and people who are out and people who are foreigner or family. It carves people up to left and right and black and white and remain and leave and yes and no and Jesus or Satan, and it just throws us. It's thrown me this year. When I feel this vulnerability, when I feel that uncertainty, claw up in my chest. I need to know what do we do to start entering into worship? How does victory start to come out? You know, for me, it starts in a place of worshiping God. Now, maybe that's surprising to you, or maybe that's just presumptuous of me because it's my job here. 
But I believe that worship is the place where we start to understand what this victory is or what this hope is. Before we see it lived out in the world around us, we need to declare it by the Spirit that lives within us. So before we see this lived out in the world around us, we need to declare it by the Spirit living within us, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Zechariah is sharing that this fullness of life is heralded by a trumpet call. And that sounding of a trumpet call is often a picture of people in worship. They would send out the worshipers in front of armies at times, making declarations, trumpets on the go. They had the drummers going at that. That's why they are the, the ultimate in the band. They actually got to do it in the Bible. They didn't have electric guitars back then, but the drummers had it. And so God is announcing this arrival with trumpets. So our worship now becomes a declaration of the coming king. We do not come here to just sing songs. We do not come to like replicate the words on the screen. If you're new, I'm sorry if this looks like karaoke. That's not the plan that we have for this thing we call worship when we sing out. We each come in here with a testimony and we each come in here with a story. We come in here with something that God has been working through us. And from there, we begin to declare who God is and how he is changing us and how he's impacting our city here. Our worship becomes that first tool to disarm hatred, to disarm fear. And this isn't even the primary point of it. We just worship because he's good, because he's worthy. And we see that in our lives when we choose to worship God, to honor him. Disarms fear, disarms hate. Because we're inviting the king to come, to create peace, create righteousness to see humility and strengthen us, all of this hope we see in this passage. Now, I remember standing next to my friend Martin from Uganda, and we were in church, and, and we'd sung the same song for like the 300th time, I think. We came to the bridge, in your freedom I will live, and we're like, cool, in your freedom I will live. I've got it, I've sung it. And in that moment, we realized that we're not actually just singing a song here, and I think that's really important to say, we're not just singing a song here. When we sing in your freedom, I will live, this becomes a prayer for him. He had a background coming from Uganda where his reality is of child soldiers um, being kidnapped and used to form um, an army. How does he begin to pray that into his community? This needs to go so far beyond song worship. It's ushering in the king it's transforming the people as a byproduct of just recognizing the presence, um, but the kingship of the one we worship. And we release this then in the world around us, the board meetings, the classes, the parents' nights, the libraries. I think we want to dig in and say, you, you may not believe you have that kind of influence or that there's such a significant peace going on in you. <clears throat> You might not think you've got that personality or perception of what you think a leader is, um, but I just want to kind of ruin some of that thinking tonight if it's held you back. Um, because we have the spirit of this incredible leader living within us. It's part of the deal when we invite the Holy Spirit into us. 
This isn't about the personality or the position of leadership that we might attain to. This is about the person. We need the kind of leadership um, that is God filling up people and loving the world around them. That would be a beautiful leadership to see. And so we've seen God who um, creates a need in us, like we hear from the prophets, creates that sense of the need in the world around us. Maybe even now I just want to hold that place that you recognize a need and an uncertainty to. And we see God begins to declare hope and declare who he is, declare plans into that, plans that disarm hatred, fear, division, plans that show Jesus centering, plans for fullness of life, of connection. And then he begins to say from this victory that you get to live it out, that we get to work it out as a community. We're never perfect in it, but there's grace. And I wonder how that grace might show up for you this week. What does it look like for this grace, this hope to show up in the conversations that you're part of? What does it look like for grace to surprise you in a meeting? I know that sense for me walking into uh, meetings where I'm not sure of the outcome, where I feel a little bit out of control. My my question is, how is grace going to show up in this meeting? What are you going to do in this, God, to go beyond what we can do? How do we see grace when um, you hear people mock someone's appearance or when you hear gossip, when you're on the train and you hear someone speaking out against a woman in an unhelpful and undervaluing way? How do you look for grace and stand in that when your meeting has the potential to manipulate someone who's on the other side of the door? How does grace show up there? These are promises of grace that we want to invite God to live out in us. For some of us, it might actually be that we have some influence in that area. And God is inviting us to to maybe train or skill up and to understand what it is to create a culture of grace where we are. Maybe that's serving one-to-one. Maybe you mentor someone. Maybe you're part of a team day in, day out. Maybe you have an influence in shaping policy or make decisions that affect the marginalized, the addicted, the unwell, or the vulnerable. Because God invites us to be his hands and feet that break the bows and remove the wheels of the chariots. There's an invitation for us. And I think this starts tonight. Just simply at at the table. And I wonder if as you drink the cup, you remember that God's fulfillment is that this idea is that it overflows. As you eat the bread, remember that this is the fulfillment of Jesus' promise to be with us, and it's starting within you. This bread and wine represent the victory, the sacrifice, the righteous, and the humble. This is more than a ritual. This is more than a practice that Jesus gave us. This is a sign and a symbol of what God is doing in us right now. Maybe through that you'll see fresh energy. Maybe fresh words of prophecy, of encouragement, or challenge for something that you're in. Maybe it's peace in the now 
or peace in what's coming up in your life. Maybe it's a specific word to encourage your colleague tomorrow. Maybe it's courage to speak up in that place where God has offered you influence. He's giving us decisions today, freedom today, that promote justice for the weak, freedom for the oppressed, liberty for captives, hope for your neighbor, hope for your own situation right now. This is the Jesus who God speaks of. This is the King. And this is part of the story that we get to live in as a community and receive from tonight as we continue to worship, continue to hear from God.